This is OTB Sports Radio. When Matt Busby signed me, I joined a club with three European footballs a year, a World Cup winner. Unbelievable to play with Bestie. Matt Busby management was incredible. He picked players like a jigsaw puzzle. He didn't pressurize you. Go out and enjoy yourself. He never swore. Matt Busby never swore. Can you imagine that from a manager today? He never swore. Off the ball, Saturdays from 1 on OTB Sports Radio. Listen live on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit. I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic of her <laughs> husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof with the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochard has never spoken to Jim McGinnis in his life. Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five o'clock. We're streaming the conversation as well now. So, as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the Off the Ball social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball on YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTV Sports app. This is the Saturday panel. The subject matter this week. Ulster Gaelic football legends, the dominance of the Northern Counties in the early 90s and the state of the game nowadays. So over the next hour, we're going to talk about then and now with three legends of the game. We're delighted to be joined by James McCartan, the All-Ireland winner with Down in 1991 and 1994, and the former manager of the Mourne Men. Declan Bonner, an All-Ireland winner with Donegal in 1992, the current manager of Turconal, and the 1993 All-Ireland winner, Joe Brody, the broadcaster and writer as well. James, Declan, Joe, good afternoon, lads. How's it going? You forgot afternoon, John. Say, you forgot to say the only down manager to lose an All Ireland final. <laughs> That's right. We kicked off the corner forwards convention, lads, already. <laughs> Joe couldn't hold the whole back straight away. Still in there with a killer. Yeah. We'll just start off, lads, um, at the environment of what it was like in the early nineties. Uh, down one in 1968. Then there was 23 barren years in, in, in Northern football before you won the All-Ireland, the Sam Maguire Cup again. Um, I did a clear out of my uh, books uh, recently, guys, and uh, there was one book that I kept that really uh, left a mark on me. It's uh, from Des Fahey. It's called uh, Death on a Country Road, about uh, two Derry fans, uh, Sean Farmer, Colin McCartney, uh, who went to the All-Ireland semi-final in 1975 to see uh, Dublin and Derry. Uh, they were murdered in a sectarian attack on, on a fake checkpoint. Of course, there were atrocities on both sides in the conflict. But in the early 1990s, um, Joe and James especially here, what was your experience, Joe, as a person, as a Gaelic footballer well, playing for Derry in the, uh, in the early 90s? Well, just, just, just let me stop you a sec. I noticed that you said there were atrocities on both sides. You have to understand that on one side, there was the state with all its machinery, its legal machinery, you know, its security machinery. I mean... Let's not forget that by the very early 70s, whenever the civil rights movement had been very forcibly, uh, you know, and aggressively sort of destroyed, there were over a thousand men, the vast majority from communities like myself and James, put in a camp inside a wire enclosure that you might see sort of in, in World War II and held there, in some cases, for three and a half years without charge, without any information to families, 
so that my own father, for example, who was the chairman of the Dungiven Club, was taken away one morning. We did not see him for three years. We weren't given any information. And that was a very typical story across the North. So it is correct, of course, to say that some very bad atrocities were committed by the provost, etc., etc. But I think that you have to look at what occurred in the North and what happened thereafter with the Gaelic football in the North through the context of uh, a, a very powerful military regime taking on the Catholic people of the North. Um, and so, I mean, I've made this point before that if you look at, let's say that 69 was the start of the Troubles, whenever um, Robert McCluskey was battened to death on Dungiven Main Street, my town, and the murder was covered up. Uh, he was a, a bachelor who'd come in to, to, to have a pint of stout in Jim McReynolds to get his groceries. And he was beaten to death on the main street, just beside the credit union. And uh, no one was ever charged with that. It was police officers who killed him. No one was ever charged with that. There wasn't a word about it. It was covered up in the normal manner. But if you take that as the starting point of the troubles and wind forward 21, 22 years, now you're into the great down team, Derry winning the All-Ireland, Ulster teams dominating colleges football. And so the lesson that came out of the troubles was that it drove our communities together. And the Gaelic Games became more important than anything else during that whole period. And uh, you can see that very clearly. It's been traced through by academics as well. Cross McGlen Rangers as well, obviously. Um, another example of that. Yeah, countless, count, I mean, clubs, northern clubs dominated um, the club scene once you, once you add on about 20 years to the start of the Troubles. And that tells you that we were driven together into very nuclear communities where it was them and us. And you were forced to rely on each other. Was that your experience, James? In Dan? Yeah, look, I suppose during the 80s, my own personal experience was during the hunger strike in 81, we had to leave our primary school uh, because we were just the abuse and uh, getting beaten up and such things. And uh, and so we had to change schools because we were we lived in a Protestant community. Now, as always, it's always the, the small few that that are reflected that most people were, were great in the area, but there's always a small bunch. So we had to change schools whenever uh, down one the line in 91 I was at Queen's University in Belfast and basically the RUC called around and told my mother that uh, I shouldn't be coming home at the weekends and to check under my car and etc etc so those things like going on it, it, during the, the late 80s whenever I was in Coleman's and Newry again uh, they tried to extort money from uh, my father who was a publican for the uh, loyalist prisoners and basically they, they, they were able to tell him what uh, buses as children were getting on, what time they were coming home from school at, and things like that. So, look at all those things going on. But yes, by the time the nineties came, like you know, all the counties are going to say they're tight knit groups, and look, it did bring us all together. We're all fighting. I remember going to we trained down trained traditionally during the winter in Ballykilner, which is a an army barracks resort. And I remember getting stopped in a typical student fashion with all skin hair haircuts, and they asked us uh, what regiment we were with. You know, and we quickly told them we weren't with any regiment and chased us on, you know, so we were, mis we were mistaken for soldiers at that stage. But look, yeah, during the, the early 90s, we were all tight-knit groups, all Donegal, Derry, Down and other counties are all strong panels. And look, 
we all came together in adversity and we'd won. there wasn't much to do. There was no Netflix or such things back in those days and getting out and playing Gaelic football was your entertainment. And uh, so we all grew up and lived for it. Did the trouble seep into Donegal in any way, uh, Declan, or was it more the issue about Ireland in the late 80s and 90s that we had a, a basket case economy and that was bigger, a bigger issue than, than what was going on in the six counties? We, we had it pretty, pretty handy listening, listening to the guys there, but uh, now we were just focused on, 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 on playing football and uh, trying to beat these guys, which was never easy. But uh, we got a fair brunt of it ourselves when we, when we met the likes of Derry and Down and Tyrone, these guys. In, in, in the 80s and 90s but uh, no it made, it made it that Ulster unit very very competitive and to this day it's still very very competitive it's, it's only championship really you know that uh, that is competitive but uh, when, you, when you look back on those years uh, you know it took us probably took down beating us probably back in 91 for us really to realise we probably weren't that far away and um, I think that really spurred us on but uh, yeah they were golden years and we had awful chuckles off the field as well, always, you know. I mean, I remember, do you remember the night out in Glasgow that yourself and Tony Scullion got into the rumpus? And, uh, and you know, Tony fired him up over the table. Tony was unbelievably strong, you know. Declan got his tie. Tony, or, hi, listen, Joe, that's gathered legs now from you. I did, I did read about it there a couple of, a couple of months back. <laughs> I know it's gathered legs as a year ago. I suppose stories normally do. They do gather legs as a year ago. Declan got his tie and squeezed it right up at his throat. You see Scully, you know, Scully had fired him over the table. And there was just a great roar of laughter, you know. And, like, it's the thing that I think about the game now that it's become very boardroomified. Everything's very serious. And lads don't really speak to each other. And they wear their earphones and they come to train and they go and they've got wellness classes and the everything's training etc we used to have an awful chuckle as well and used to have great social nights together you know um, there was a book written we, we was usually leading the charge yeah <laughs> there, there was a book written about um the the middleweights in the 80s called uh, four kings about Hagler, hearns duran and, and sugar ray leonard and how these guys kept on beating each other and it was a golden age for middleweight boxing in america uh, when I'm looking through the records there, everybody seemed to beat everybody else in, the, in that period between 91 and 94. Derry and Dan beat, beat each other twice. You, you know, you beat uh, Derry in the 92 final, Declan in 93. Uh, you know, you, you won through in Derry, Joe. Uh, what, what stood out, uh, Joe, vividly from those battles and those characters and those cr crucial uh, wins, especially the one in, in the 8-6 win in, in 93? See, uh, I have a very clear view of what happened to Ulster football. I mean, Donegal had a superb team. They had superb Gaelic footballers in every position. And yet, they were failing at national level. And it was very much, for me, it was a confidence thing. It was a, a feeling that, look, this far, but no further. And, and then, Wee James came along. And he, he changed everything. I mean, anyone who saw Wee James playing as a 15, 16-year-old, you know, I remember myself and my father used to go to see St. Coleman's games to watch him. You'd go like, oh, Jesus. I mean, it was, a, it was genuinely a phenomenon. You went with genuine excitement to see him playing. We hadn't seen anything like this before. Perhaps Dermot McNichol, but Dermot wouldn't have had James's, you know, uh, ability to make decisive contributions all the time. I mean, he was completely unstoppable. You would go to games and laugh. I remember Wee James playing in a McCrory Cup final against Mahara, and it was the, the Mahara team that was the Derry Miners, Tohalot, that won the All-Ireland. They were absolutely all-conquering. 
and Lee James's team had been all conquering the previous year. I think Lee James, you'd already got an All-Ireland minor championship at that stage. And the match was played up in Cull Island, and there was a huge crowd at it. Because there were so many personalities and characters in both teams, but primarily to watch this man. And as I recall, you scored a hat-trick of goals that day in a losing cause. And each goal was sensational. I mean, you'd pick up the ball in the middle of the field. The other thing about him, he could take a ball at full speed running towards it, to take it, roll over three or four times, be up on his feet, beat three or four men, stick it in the net. I mean, he was... And the down team that he came into, which is the point of me... So I'd just like to book you for my eulogy at my funeral, just to make a positive contribution there. If, ever I, go, if I go before you, I need you to be able to speak, all right? Well, well, James, you didn't, you didn't realise you were that good. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about growing legs. Or, <laughs> but the down Keep team going, Joe. I'm enjoying it. I'm not believing it, it, but it, I'm enjoying it it, it. it is the truth. And the down team that he came into, very much like the Donegal team that Declan was playing on, they clearly had very, very good players all over the field. But they didn't, they didn't believe that they could. And I remember Sean O'Neill saying, after down were beaten, about a year or two before James came into the senior team, he said... He was interviewed, you know the way he was, he was interviewed after Tyrone had beaten down and down had tamely surrendered to them. Uh, and Sean said about Sean Donnelly, the Tyrone cornerback, well, he said, Mr. Donnelly better make hay while the sun shines. There's a little boy called James McCartan from Tully Leash who'll have him in his sights in a year or two. And boy, was he right about that. I mean, Lee James completely changed the scene in Ulster because all of a sudden, you know, down were in Croke Park. I mean, the team that couldn't be beaten me I mean, you ran, we James ran riot that day, could not be marked. And, you know, and there it was. And as Declan says, once down won the All-Ireland. Well, Donny Gall said, hey, we can do this as well. And we said, we can do this as well. So did it make a tangible difference then, the 91 success? Did it, did it give you that belief, Declan, that you could go in 92 once you got through that Ulster final? And, and yeah, then... listen, it, it did, there's no doubt, because... If you look back where, where we came from, where, where Donegal were, I mean, 72 was our first Ulster senior title. So 72 and 74, Brian McEnough was involved with both of those. Then 83, we, we won Ulster in 1990, beat Armada final. And um, we played, I remember we, we, we played Mead in the semi-final, a very good Mead team that that uh, James started out the following, the following season. But... Um, we just didn't have the belief. Joe was 100% right. We, we didn't have the belief. We, I think we were just happy with our lot to, to one Ulster. Um, and I remember we played Fermanagh, I think it was in the... Joe, or a downbeat us in 91. And then 92, we beat Fermanagh in the semi-final. And we were basically... I still remember uh, an address in Oma. And basically, the players were saying, lads, if we're, if we're going to go do the same thing we've done over the last three years, we're going to get the same result. We might win Ulster, we might not win Ulster, but we'll be definitely not going any further. So basically, from that moment when we left Oma that evening, we, I mean, normally you'd be on the, on the session for two days after getting re- after winning an Ulster semi-final or final. That wasn't the case. We were back on the pitch on, on the Monday and getting ready for an Ulster final. We trained like we'd never done before ahead of that Ulster final against Derry. And that carried us right through 92. And the belief was there. There's no doubt we, we faced, you know, we, we had 14 men and, uh, before half time in that also final. John Cunningham got sent off. And then we had Tony Boyle picked up an, an injury. And that was a huge loss to us. So we came out that second half and um, we won that Ulster, Ulster 92. He's supposed to come back and then to the semi final against Mayo, poor game. But again, we got over the line. And I think getting over the line, we couldn't see ourselves being beaten at All Ireland 92, to be quite honest. 
Uh, there was serious belief within that group. And um, I think Tony Boyle yeah. was a massive, a massive factor. You know, Tony's arrival, a bit like Lee James, because Tony didn't see, you know, he, he had no baggage. A lot of the non golf players had been through a lot of heavy campaigns and lost, you know, in big games. And then Tony just, a bit like Lee James, he, he just he played freely. You know, nothing seemed to deter him. Tony's actual first start for Donegal was in the 1990 All-Ireland semi-final. That was his first game. That, that he came on the Ulster final in 1990 and uh, he started against Mick Lyons, nice baptism, in, a, in an All-Ireland semi-final. But uh, I'm sure when Joe goes back to the load, there'll be a pint waiting for him now up in Patrick's. Well, as if, as if there wasn't before. <laughs> Do you remember, the night, you remember the, the night Declan we were drinking Packies Bar? Up in Dewey, it's the most amazing sight. Probably you've never been there, me James, but it's right on the beach. It's very, very remote. Eventually, you would think, well, like the, the satnav must be wrong. And myself and Declan were drinking there, and Packy, who Seamus Heaney immortalised in a poem, a cart for Edward Gallagher. That's about Packy's father and Packy. But Packy, he's a bachelor, and he sits behind the bar and he, he sips whiskey. You see, but he thinks you can't see him. But as the day goes on, he was getting lower and lower and lower on the stool. <laughs> Right. That's true. That's true. True. Yeah. But pride of place at the bar is a photograph of Declan with Sam McGuire in '92 beside Packy. Joe gets up there fairly often, John, during during the summertime. So there's a seat there for him, all right. So he gets to, yeah. He was now. In, I think there was one evening we were over there. I think a couple of Tyrone guys might have been staying over there. I think he might have got a bit of abuse that night, and we all sat back and enjoyed it. But it's a wonderful place, honestly. It's just a, it's an escape from reality. I think Seamus Heaney and Brian Friel used to go up there mm. just to, to do that, you know, because it's 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 so remote and so beautiful. So in '93, were you gunning from the time of the draw, Joe, to to, to avenge uh, these these defeats to Down and Donegal and then come through and win that Ulster? Anthony Tohill, obviously, a huge uh, figure coming through for you in midfield. Well, I think the most influential person, you know, was well, it was a Jew, Henry Downey and Johnny McGurk from Lavi. They would have been sworn enemies of us and Dungiven, but don't forget they had brought a, they had driven a tiny, tiny club in Lavi to win to be the All Ireland Club champions. And Henry was one of those players. If you set him out and you did a, a skill session, you would say, "Ah, mediocre," you know. But put him on the field, a bit like Roy Keane, he was just burning, and he, he drove us on and drove us on. And obviously, we had the players and the personalities and. We knew we could beat down. We knew we could beat Donegal. We'd beaten down two or three times in big games. And and in fact, nearly the worst thing that could have ever happened in 91, we nearly stopped their All-Ireland run because they forced a draw against us in the Ulster semi-final in Athletic Bounce. Ross Carr kicked a free from about 50 metres on the whistle to draw the game. And then they beat us narrowly in the replay. And I always say, thank God we didn't win that because there was no way that we were ready to win in All-Ireland then. You know, but by 93, we'd been through the mill with Down, we'd been through the mill with Donegal, and there was a sense in the group, just what Declan's saying, although for us, we didn't, we didn't start our training after the Ulster semi-final, we started much earlier. <laughs> but we, uh, at training, there was a sense of warfare, and every night at training was warfare, presided over by Downey and McGurk, who were... You know, sort of, you know, those, you always, and we, we have them, you know, every everyone has these on a successful team. You know, the dubs have two or three of them. The, these schizophrenics who are terribly polite and lovely lads off the field, 
but when they're on the field, you know, they'll go to the very end. It's, you know, the, it's like the it's like the great boxer rising to it in the fifteenth round of a heavyweight bout. You know, there was something those two had a dark heart and they drove us on. And really, you know, I know from the outside people think it's a wonderful thing to win the All Ireland, but from our perspective, we were good enough. You know, and, and the the thing then was just to simply go and do it. And there was most certainly a sense throughout that year that nothing would prevent us from winning that, and particularly after the defeats to Down and Donegal in the previous years. You kept Cork uh, scoreless for the last 25 minutes of the game, Joe, and then you scored the last four points. Did you, you, when you know when you feel, when you're about to feel like you're going to win it, what, what's coursing through your veins? Are you even thinking about it at that stage? Well, it, it, it washes over you very, very quickly. And, you know, it was, I mean, there was a vast excitement. Like I, I felt such a vast excitement all year. And, you know, it was, it was almost like a fantasy, you know, and taken to the field. There was an unreal quality to it. And you just, I mean, I can't remember anything about those games, the All-Ireland semi-final and final. I mean, we just, in we went and came out the other end. But I do remember very vividly standing in the shower after the All-Ireland final saying to Fergal McCusker, is this it? Is this it? And feeling desolate almost, like a sense of total anticlimax. And the two of us wandered up to the cat and kids and had a pint. In those days, there were no big formalities. We went up to the cat and kids and had a pint. And drank with dubs in there for a while. And I can remember thinking, I can feel it now when I'm sitting here, that sense of anti-climax, which was a great lesson in life. You know, that all that stuff is, once it's behind you, you just, you move on. What's next? You know, you have to move on. You can't live in the past. What was your feeling, James? You just took to Croke Park like a duck to water against me, then the Dubs, man of the match and the goal in 94 as well? Yeah, well, I suppose, um, look, in 91, coming to the Learn final, I was not playing overly well. I reckon the poor didn't play that well in the Ulster Championship. Maybe had a half-decent Ulster final, but definitely didn't contribute very much in the semi-final. Peter Whitnell got his, got his two goals. In the final, uh, look, because of maybe performance, I was in the second year. My first year probably was getting more attention because I scored a couple of goals. But by the time the Learn final came around, it was Mickey Linton and Peter Whitnell that the focus was on, and I maybe sneaked in under the radar a little bit. Uh, Robbie O'Malley <laughs> was down to Mark. Robbie O'Malley was down to Markney and I think he got injured in the, in the build-up to the game and, and Brendan Riley ended up starting on me who made his name as a, as a forward later on with, with me with the Lions. So, look, I, I maybe just got a, a fraction more leeway than, than, uh, than the other guys and they, they, because of their performances, I got the room and it was me. Well, it was about time I performed in, in, the, in the, the final that year. Again, in 94, look, after beating Derry in the first round, it's very strange. You went from the nobody going in, going in playing Derry as complete underdogs. And then after the Derry game, you're installed basically as favourites for the All-Ireland, which is very strange playing in the Ulster Championship, knowing, knowing that you, if you didn't win the All-Ireland in September, months away, that it was going to be deemed a failure. So it was, again, we managed to, to get through to the final, playing OK against Cork in the semi-final. Uh, the final against Dublin... It was a very poor day and, and uh, weather-wise and Down would have had the sort of reputation and, and maybe still do to a certain extent that they're a dry ball team and good forwards I suppose want a dry, dry ball but I suppose any good forwards should still be able to play in the wet but 
back in those days, we seemed to have difficulty getting victories in, in the wet, as proved it the following year against Donegal. So it was a big, uh, we, we gritted out and battled out on an Ireland final win that could have went either way if Charlie Redmond had stuck, stuck the ball in the net. I was lucky to, to be on the end of a, a very selfless act from Mickey Linton. He passed the ball over to me. And again, look, Mickey was on fire that year. He was, he was player of the year. And, you know, at times he was unmarkable. So, look, uh, probably the big game for me that year was the first round against Derry. But again, again, Mickey Linton, he scored six points from play. And again, was proven a handful for Gary Coleman or Tony Scullion or whoever happened to be on him. So, look, two, I know Joe's actually to get in there, so I better buy that here. Oh, but, but yet, you know... Again, that year, the decisive contributions were James's because, you know, it is correct that in hindsight, the crucial game, the final was really the first round. And in that game, I set Fergal McCusker up for a goal with seven or eight minutes to go. And that put us ahead. And that was the first time I think that we'd been ahead. And the game was done. The game was done. And about a minute or two later, James scored probably the most remarkable point I've ever seen on a Gaelic football field. Carl Diamond took a shot, it dropped, it dropped a bit short, it was knocked to James down the right wing, and you could see in his mind, I was going to ask you this, was it your intention? I'm going to go the length of the pitch, and no matter what happens, this is going over the bar. Because eventually, three dairy defenders chased him, and I was fully relieved when I saw Kieran McKeever coming across, because I thought, you know, he's not going to score with McKeever. And out out on the right wing on his right foot after was an absolutely lung-bursting run where he was, you know, with the way we James pinballed about being knocked down and getting moved. He scored the point. And I knew when he scored the point, you could feel it. It changed everything. It changed everything. And all of a sudden, there was angst in the dairy ranks. And it was we James. You know, Mickey Linton was gone by that stage. I mean, McKeever had picked him up and had, you know, I mean, he had scored all his points in the first half and McKeever picked him up and that was the end of him. And uh, this man again, you know, that thing that you just can't put your finger on, but the truly great footballers of which he has won, you know, and uh, that day was really we teams who turned it around and uh, say it's, uh, it was a great disappointment for us because it, for other reasons off the field, it then destroyed that team. But uh, so he, he sort of, he, he showed us the way to an All-Ireland and then he destroyed us. <laughs> a truly a love hate figure in Derry. Yes. That's true, but so, that's absolutely true, E. James, about that game. You know yourself, you'd never have won it without you. There's absolutely no way. That game was gone from down after the Joe, Joe, you've been, well, you, you eulogise about me. I think you're particularly harsh on some other members of the, the, the down team, you know, and like Mickey Lynn and. and oh, you're and, great. And, I know great you're, you're, yeah, well, it's nice to get nice things said about you. I have to sort of not agree with, with a lot. Some of them, anyway, look, and as. Mickey Lynn was magnificent at that oh, day. He, he scored one point in the second half and he certainly created, he slipped the ball for Kieran McCabe's goal, if you remember, uh, and just a wee flick off the shoulder. And then he went on to, to you know, be the player of the year and certainly in the Ireland final. Well, uh, when, well, don't get me so, wrong, great player. Like, don't get me wrong, but I just yeah, make points. He scored, point, he scored a point with Paul Clark, uh, a similar one maybe that oh, he scored in, in Derry. Coming along the sideline when the angle was so acute, and Paul Clark, who as a probably wasn't a out and out cornerback, but was put into Mark Mark Mickey and did absolutely everything right to prevent to prevent that score, and Mickey still showed the way. So look, while it's, it's, oh, it's, it's nice to see nice things, there's other good players in that team too. 
Declan, uh, for you in 92, uh, it was a novelty for uh, Donegal that Dan and Derry had already experienced. They'd already been in all Ireland finals, even though it was 58 for Derry or um, uh, for 60 in the 60s for Dan. What was it like for you? Was it pure euphoria when you scored that, that, that late point to make it 18-14 against the Dubs? You weren't expected to win. What was the uh, emotions that were running through your veins uh, and, and what was the reaction back at the community and the clubs back in, in uh, Open the Hills? Yeah, no, it was pretty... Uh... That's, it was pretty special, no doubt about it. Um, going back, I suppose we, we spoke earlier about beating Derry and then the semi-final against Mayo, uh, a game that will not go down as one of the all-time greats. Um, but against the preparation went into Dublin, we just felt, you know, we'd done a huge amount of work. There's no doubt about that there. Um, some of the, the stuff that we done would go against any of the sports signs that's out there nowadays. Uh, we were going... Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we could go three, four nights on the trot. Wouldn't be heard of now. Um, but we just felt good into that final. We didn't get off to particulars. I think the, the turning point probably was Charlie Redmond, the missed penalty. And, uh, you know, we really had a purple patch after. I think we won 9-4, made us with seven points in the trot um, at one stage in the first half. Uh, yeah, and the last score went, put, put us four up. We just felt at that stage that was, that was it over, you know. But... Uh, no, great, great, great emotion to be quite honest, and uh, first time doing it, uh, really special. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was some, um, some time after. There's no doubt about it. The celebrations went on, long and hard. Was it more than the cat and cage? Uh, no, the cat and cage. Uh, the, yeah, the cat and cage. We would have spent a bit of time around the cat and cage also, but uh, no, we didn't get an opportunity on that, on that occasion. It was uh, back to Malahide, and then we were we were staying there. I think the Burlington at that stage. Both teams would have went to the, the Burlington on the, on, the, the guards, on the Monday. The guards, the guards spent about the next year driving them home from their nights out. That's another one of Joe's going to gather more legs too. But anyway, uh, we went, yeah, no, we, we stayed in, in Dublin and we came down on the, on the Monday. So it was a huge, yeah, it was listen, special time and traveling around. And, you know, going back, I suppose looking ahead, ended in 93, when, when we got into 93 and I'll still maintain that final should never have taken place against Derry and, 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 and Clonus. It was an absolute quagmire. Uh, now, listen, Derry's name was probably on the Cup in 1993, but just felt, you know, it was a low-scoring game. I think Tohal had a really immense game. It was... Uh, the game would never have taken place now. That was just oh, unbelievable. No chance. No Not a chance. chance. Yeah, well, yeah. I agree totally. I mean, it was like a, it was like a, a, a mud wrestling. Players were coming off afterwards, you know, and you could, you could see your eyes, you know, and people were... And I think, as I recall, Declan, didn't one of the in the minor match? I thought one of the minor footballers got his leg broken very, very badly, skidding in on the. And you were talking about your foot and parts of the pitch. Your foot was being submerged when you put your foot down on the pitch. The water was above it. Water was yeah. above your boot. I think the referee. I, if I'm not mistaken, Johnny Galboys have been whinging about it ever since. Whinge, whinge, whinge. But, whinge. Uh, no, no, we're not. We, we haven't <laughs> whinged, but I think. Ulster Council made a call that day that the game was going to be played and that was it. And it was dangerous. It was dangerous from a player's point of view. And you're right, Joe, there was a young minor got a horrific leg break in the minor game prior, prior to our game. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day... Anyway, Declan, it wouldn't have made any difference. We still... Look, we had about... If you look, going back from 92 then, into 93, we didn't actually manage it well. I have to say that because we played... The leagues at that stage were all mixed up. We ended up playing in Carlo and Tipperary and uh, we were down... Uh, the leagues and what way they were jumbled up, but we continued to play week in, week out, and we didn't. You know, by the time we came to the ultra final, I'm just looking there, we had five of the starting lineup that, that played in the Ireland final weren't there, so 
we did use a wheel brake on there. Now we're not holding that against you, Joe. You used to serve to want it and used to serve to want it on Ireland. But uh, we, we, we lost the backbone with Martin Gavigan, Anthony Malloy, Tony Boyle, Noel Hegarty, Donald Reid. Never played in that Ulster final in 93. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was it. And uh, it took us another 20 years to go back and, and won it uh, under Jim in 2012, you know. It was a pity, really, in a way, that, that, that I suppose it was just the way it was, but that's the, that those teams all battered each other in the first rounds of championship. I mean, I think we put down out in, in your prime, James, twice maybe in the first round. You put us out in the preliminary round. You know, and uh, if you'd had a back door in those days, it would have been a very different story. But, of course, it wouldn't have had the same vast excitement. I mean, I remember that match up at Celtic Park where you guys came up to play us. And also the previous year in Casement Park, where I think there were 40, so you're 44,000 people in Casement Park, the biggest ever crowd there for our semi-final. The vast excitement of that. I mean, the, you, we came out of the changing room at Celtic Park and as you felt the ground was moving. And it was just, and you hear people were squealing. It was fever pitch from start to finish. And, uh, you know, I think that the back door has diluted a lot of that uh, we were in a huge fan club, Joe, around that time. And, I mean, a lot, I mean, 10, 15,000 extra were going just to see you. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> Speaking about the fact that we had a championship back in the early 90s, guys, which didn't have a back door. Uh, we had a Congress last weekend. Joe, it seems miraculously the mist has cleared and the pandemic has accelerated a split season for GA, for a club in Intercounty. Um, is this a winning formula for the future for you? I know you've been advocating for it. Oh, yeah. Players need to have a life. And what has happened is with the commodification of the game, you know, the onset of the GPA, the professionalization of the game. I mean, Declan will tell you this. I mean, Declan is managing now at the highest level and, you know, previously took a very successful Donegal under 21 team. And it becomes, it has become a job. And that conveyor belt can get very wearisome. And you know, we're, we're now seeing a very different type of game as a result. You know, players mentally need a break. It is an amateur sport. And if the pandemic has had one good outcome, you know, when I say that with, you know, great respect, you understand what I mean when I say that. It's that, you know, we're seeing now that we've been forced to have a shorter season. And that's what we need. We just cannot continue the way we've been going because it's taken all the fun out of the game. And you see that in the body language and behaviour of players. As I, I, I use the phrase again, the boardroomification of the game. The game has just become a branch of politics, a branch of every other part of society. You know, the characters have gone out of it. The distinctive skill sets that we used to see a player coming along with really distinctive skill set. Do you remember Thunderthighs, Derek McDonald, Gavin Declan? Boys like that, or we James coming along, or Dermot McNichol. You know, players with very distinctive skill sets. You know, and increasingly now, it's very, very samey because we're on that conveyor belt you know, of, of, of zombie coaches, you know, zombie methods that are done without regard to the individuals at your disposal. And slowly but surely, the fun has been taken out of it. And uh, so we need, to, we need to stick with what we're doing now. I think there's no reason that we shouldn't you know, get rid of the subsidiary competitions, shorten the season. I thought... You know, obviously, you'd want supporters to be there and for us all to have the joy that we feel from, from that. But last year was the way forward. Short, short, short season. I mean, there's no need, need to be dragging it out. And boys need to have a life and to be able to get on with their lives. 
Jacqueline, are you in favour of the, the split season? And how have things changed from, from your playing days, 30 years on, we're speaking about Donegal 92, to a situation now where I'm sure there's not as much of a, a drinking culture, it's strength and conditioning, it's, it's pr- almost it's semi-professional. What is your experience day-to-day now as a manager with a, trying to manage a panel of players that are, are taking this very seriously? Yeah, listen, it's, it's professional and, and everything but name, but... Uh, I mean, these guys live like professional athletes. They're, you do your three gym sessions a week, your pitch sessions, three pitch sessions, or two pitch sessions, or vice versa, three and two. There's probably two recovery, two rest days in, in, in there. But, uh, and that's the level. I mean, if you don't, you're, you're not going to be at the, at, at the playing field. Simple as that there. Dublin really have gone to a different level. And um, But I don't know if the split season... I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not 100 percent convinced about it. To be quite honest, um, for a number, of, probably a couple, of, a couple of reasons. Uh, does that mean that leagues, leagues probably start in January? Does your preseason go back to December? Start in January, you run through. I'm all in favour of games and week in, week out. To be quite honest, and and you know, before, when we were playing, Joe and James will allude to this. I mean, you played one championship game and you had four weeks off, and you had another four weeks off or three weeks off, and. You know, and uh, there was one game in Ulster every every Sunday, and that was it. That day's gone. There'll be multiple games, and uh, and I think it did work well. The 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 championship last season, I know without spectators, but uh, you know when you finish your clubs or your intercounty season, say July, some of the teams will probably be gone by June. When does your club season start? Does that roll into for the successful teams into October, November? I don't know. Uh, they're going to be playing ten or eleven months. No, but as long as you, I mean, the key thing is this. I mean, what you need to start with is to say, okay, look, we're going to have a season that lasts no longer than seven months, but all in, all in. You know, save for, for example, club teams who go on to all Ireland semi-finals and finals. So we shorten it. We make sure that there are those breaks. And then you play the games every week, just as you said, Declan. You know, I mean, it's just a matter then of, of, of finding the correct model. But you start with, shortening the season. And I think that that principle is being established now in the minds of, you know, the, the bureaucrats in the GAA, that principle is being established over the pandemic and with the proposals for this year, obviously this year is going to have to be a drastically shortened season as well. And uh, I think that will propel our thinking towards saying, look, this is a lot healthier. James, we're seeing, uh, I, I'd expect and I'd hope that less money be spent on this runaway train of inter-county teams. You've been dealing with minors for the last few years and down uh, how are they uh, like approaching the game as young lads? And also, how's their mental health been, like having to obviously be young people and be in this constrained environment in the pandemic? Certainly, the mental health issue would be something that, uh, that you know, back in our day, we would have been told they're tightening themselves up and they get on with it and get out to big Jesse and tighten up a bit. But unfortunately, to say, that's not the language you can use anymore. I, I've been told off by professors <laughs> on numerous occasions, you know, that are been school teachers telling me that I just cannot speak to people in such contexts. But look, mental health is an issue. Like, we would have had, if, if you, even you're trying to spur a guy on uh, and, and try and, you know, you use language. Look, I think you can be a wee bit fitter, maybe you lose a bit of weight, and then the fella doesn't come back the next the next night because he feels that you've been criticised of him and he's, he's in a bad place and he's depressed because you thought he could be a bit, you know, some really strange things that back in our day would be laughed about. But you have to, 
I'm not going to say pussyfoot around because that sounded the wrong signal, but you have to you have to use the language that's appropriate for the time. And uh, at times I found that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> using the language of wellness. Yeah. <laughs> I had to send me on a few Zoom courses to try and tidy up my, my yeah. dressing room you know, manners. But, but that's that sort of tyranny of politics that has come into area, every area of life now, you know, where, where we have to speak in a very bland way. I mean, you see it with, with television. You, know, you see it increasingly. Like I, I listened to a presentation recently over Zoom by a well-known sports coach. I just tuned in to listen to it, you know, just to make sure that my prejudices were correct. And I mean, honestly, it was mindset growth and skill set growth and, um, you know, a, a language of gobbledygook that really means nothing in the end, but that's safe. You know, no one gets offended. They all nod and they say, well, thank you very much. That was very, very helpful. And uh, you come away none the wiser. You know, just Joe, we would have had a couple of we would have had a couple of experiences with the minors during lockdown of, of players not coping and you know parents sort of reaching out to the, the, the management team and we weren't allowed to, to meet them to train them and we probably you know volunteered to meet them one on one but socially distanced just to take them for a training session yeah, just yeah. to try and give them a ch chance but you know the, the lockdown the fallout from lockdowns is still to be discovered and well, I, 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 I agree and particularly where it's established scientifically the transmission rates are virtually zero outdoors um, you know that 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 a method a mechanism couldn't be found to allow small groups of young people to train outdoors you know in in the proper groups which we were doing with great success when we were allowed to do that uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, a, 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 a study of 7,000 COVID cases in China revealed that only two of those were via outdoor transmission, and that was two elderly neighbours who'd spent a long time chatting together in close proximity during that time. So, I mean, we, we went through a full, I mean, our, my miners last year went through a full minor championship campaign because we had obviously, we were permitted to do that. Um, you know, there was no changing room, no indoors, all outdoors. We didn't have a single case, not a single case through an entire minor championship campaign. And uh, I, I agree with you entirely that it's, it's, it's uh, very, very, very difficult for kids at this time. You know, I think, so Joe, I think you're right. I think, me, I mean, and James also, I mean, go back, I came back in with the underage system maybe 10 years ago now. It's completely, it's a different, it's a different world we live in now, to be quite honest, you know. And uh, you've got to be very careful everything you do, everything you say, uh, and a lot of it comes from 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 individual backgrounds too. And uh, you can see it at first hand. I mean, parents getting really involved, and you know, we're in twelve months now in this lockdown, and, and I think Joe, one hundred percent right. Pitches should have been quite honest, left open for for these children, and you know, they're not going in near dress rooms. I mean, they're out on a, on an open pitch. Uh, doing some other than playing PlayStation or or and uh, I mean, it's going. I mean, it's good. I don't know what's going to be, come out of the last 12 months in relation to some of these kids that are growing up. Now, I see it firsthand. I mean, they've lost, the, you know, they're on Zoom meetings for college. They're on Zoom meetings. My young lad doing his leaving, sir. He, he just got back into school this week. But they, they've lost touch with their, with, their, with their friends and contact, and it's all over this media now. And, uh, this media, and it's, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. It'll, be like, it'll be like the end of World War II when this is all over. You know, people will go crazy. You're, well, it'll not take uh, it'll not take a year out for you to go crazy, Joe. You're all right. 
you're on social media a lot, Joe, and obviously you're talking about like how society has changed and the way society is now. I'm just, I'm just curious, given the, the, the Gordon Elliott situation this week, and there's been a lot of obviously talk about what he did and what he did was wrong and everything, and the, you know, the opprobrium that he's received and the, um, the cancel culture that's out there. <clears throat> I'm just interested in your view, Joe, on um, as, a, as a fellow Jerry man, on the level of abuse that James McLean uh, has received on social media. He's been very eloquent about why he chose not to wear the poppy. Um, he's working and living in England. You must have a huge degree of empathy for him. That's part of it. You know, he's a dairy Republican and uh, he, he has made no uh, bones about that. I mean, anybody who grew up during James's era in dairy, you know, it was very likely to have very anti-establishment tendencies. You know, don't forget that the cradle of the civil rights movement was gerrymandering in places like Derry City. Uh, depriving many people in poorer Catholic areas of the vote. I mean, things that people, young people nowadays would be stunned to learn about. So, you know, and, and so, you know, there's nothing surprising about James being forthright about his views. He has decided to, to, to wear his colours on his sleeve and therefore that's the decision that he has made. You know, and when you, when you step out like that in the way that he has, you know, if you say anything nowadays, well, there's going to be a backlash. And, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he doesn't deserve uh, the, the, the sort of level of abuse that's there. But once you're a high-profile person, um, you have to, you just, you just learn to filter it out. You know, filter it out or else stop doing it. You know, get off social media. Don't, don't make appearances. Don't be involved in that. And, uh, you know, once you see it for what it is, then I think you can handle it easily enough. He's a big boy. We started off the conversation, James, about um, the troubles in 30 years ago and, and when uh, these Northern teams that you were involved in won the All-Ireland. Has there been a dividend out of the peace process? Obviously, the, the, the key dividend is this peace, but has the GA benefited from um, you know, the, the peace process in terms of infrastructure and funding and support? I suppose there hasn't been uh, as much money spent on, on the defending outposts, etc., and it has been a bit more lobbying with the key, Joe. Did they not get the biggest grant? Did Johnny McGurk get a massive grant for Lave down there in, in Derry for a big indoor facility back in the day? They, they were the keys of opening the door for the finances from the government to the GAA. You, so, look, the, you may very well think so, James. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> but, I, wouldn't uh, I wouldn't answer any of those free staters' questions about <laughs> infrastructure in the North. They weren't that much concerned about infrastructure in the North during the Troubles. Whenever whenever they pretended to come to the border to assist us and then they then they retreated and then for the next generation they entirely supported the british side and were apologists were sorry were apologists for an appalling inhumane regime which if we saw now in china or russia you know these same people would be rushing to condemn you know, so I wouldn't be getting palsy walsy with these boys, we teams, to be fair. Well, well we are in dying. We've got grants, did you? You got, you got grants, which we were absolutely entitled to. Let me tell you how those grants came about. <laughs> the Government of Ireland Act guaranteed parity of funding for sports in the North. I think the statistic was that there were over 1,000 council soccer pitches and not a single council Gaelic pitch. It was self-help. You know, we did all of this ourselves. And when grants became available through the European funds, we, because we had very high capacity at clubs, because we're community-based, so in the Dungiven Club, 
lawyers, accountants, you know, people involved in politics at a higher level. We were able to harness all of that capacity to make sure that we got what was owned to us. But that's all that we got. And this sort of notion out there, oh, you know, that oh, we, we took the Queen's shilling. Let me be absolutely clear about this. The Queen has taken everyone's shilling. You know, I mean, starting, <laughs> starting, <laughs> starting with the invasion of Ireland, coming forward. I mean, you know, her fortune, her fortune didn't sort of magically appear from nowhere. Well, so, uh, you know, to I give them firm, I think that it's, I think, sorry, can I just finish this? I think it's biased. I think it's sectarian, you know, and I think it's entirely discriminatory to imply that in the North, we somehow milked the British system to get a few well, pounds to assist meant, with floodlights and things like that. I didn't mention the North, I just mentioned Derry. But anyway, just to be fair, to be fair- <laughs> I won't I'm answer any of that Free Staters <laughs> questions, James. <laughs> to be fair in County Down, we're actually, uh, we're hoping to open our Centre of Excellence, Excellence in Ballykindler on land that was gifted to us. So as you, it was rightly ours to begin with, Joel. I'm just gonna get in with what you said. But we've been given background in Valley Kinler that the army had taken over where there was internment back in the day. So things have maybe come full circle. It doesn't make any apology for what happened many years ago, but at least some of the down may benefit with some of the, the, the ground that we're going to get for our Centre of Excellence. It's hard for me to <laughs> it, it's hard it's hard for me to segue, guys, from that to uh to Eklund asking you about cynical fouling in the in the Gaelic uh, football environment. Uh, given what we saw Congress last weekend. What do you think about this rule? Are we in the sweet spot now with this rule about the penalty being awarded if a foul uh, cynically is committed inside the 21-yard line or the D in addition to the sin bin, the black card? Uh, listen, I think to leave the rules, leave the rules. The rules are all right. Leave them the way they are. I don't see any reason. And uh, um, no, listen, I don't really have any real opinion on that. I want to be quite honest. You know, I think, it, I think the rules are okay. I think we've changed. I think Congress seemed to come up every year and they, they seem to have to come up with a different a couple of different new rules or ideas every year. So uh, uh, the, the other one was the joint captains. <laughs> yeah, another exciting, exciting one. But now listen here, leave things as they are. They're fine. Huh? Just... Yeah. Well, I, I, I thoroughly disagree with that. I have to say that, you know, and I mean, there was nothing more disparaging for a forward. You know, it could have happened to E. James. It could have happened to you because you played the position. And that's what we go to games for. We go to, we go to games to see Declan Bonner sticking the ball in the net. He's through. Oh, Jesus, here he goes. This is the moment. Will he beat the keeper? Oh! You know, and we've all been there. And the, the cynicism that has come into the game, the very, you know, the, the targeted systematic cynicism, which is, look, if he's inside, you pull him down, take one for the team, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and the black card was never targeted properly. The punishment never fitted the crime. Unlike rugby, for example, where if you get sinned in, it's... You know, you get your penalty try, you get your penalty conversion without even have to take it. You know, the player gets sent off or the player gets sinned in. Average 14 points against during the sin bin. The punishment fits the crime so that the player afterwards is apologising and the manager said, what the were you thinking of? In our game, it's different. It's, that was a smart one because it deprived them of a goal-scoring opportunity and it brought us home. So I think that they, they, the, the rule I've contended for is if you deprive an opponent of a clear goal-scoring opportunity by a cynical foul, you know, so Wee James comes out, he wins the ball, he's going through, the Sean Cavan has done on him, red card and penalty. Red card and penalty. Won't do it again. Won't do it again. We don't go, we don't go to games to see guys dragging guys down. You know, it's a depressing and sort of nihilistic thing. We, we don't like to see it in society in general. 
we don't want to see it in our sports where we go to see the best of our young men playing. You know, I don't want to see we James or Declan Bonner being dragged down when they're through for goal with 30 seconds to go in a huge game. And if they are dragged down cynically, fair enough. Take one for the team. There's your red card. Here's the penalty. Here's the penalty. And if you can stick it in the net, well, there you there's still, the, you know, you're not being awarded the penalty goal. And I think that finally, finally is the remedy for this problem. I've been arguing for it since the black card was advocated because the black card was far too fuzzy and vague and it didn't really work. Is the game more cynical than it was 30 years ago, James? Absolutely, definitely. Look, the game has definitely changed. Back in, in, in the day, it was man for man. It was, you went to see the individual context, contests. You went to see uh, Joe Brawley been marked by, uh, no, Mickey Lynn been marked by uh, Tony Scullion or Kieran McKeever. You went to see the man-on-man competition, James McCartan be Paul Donnelly from Tyrone. But now, now the way the numbers behind the ball, you could be a very, very poor defender and not be found out. But you could, just as long as you're a decent ball player, you, you hang around in the cluster of players and, uh, and wait for your team to win the ball back and then you break and uh, you look good because you're the man that brings the ball, carrying the ball out. And yes, you need that player. But if you're picked in defence, I like you to be able to defend. Uh, Dan Gordon said to me once, I think, before the Ulster final in 2012, when we were trying to figure out how to beat Donegal, which we failed miserably to do. But uh, he said that my mother could play in the Donegal fullback line with a man in front, another man on the other side, and two beside. So it was never man on man. It was always going into the spider's web and getting and caught up. So look, from that point of view, uh, things have changed. I, hopefully it's drifting back to a more positive uh, uh, outlook that we're not all sitting behind the ball. Is it any more cynical? Look, I don't know, the, the black card thing, the changes there. I think Joe's right. The black card was flawed and the fact that people were getting sent off uh, with meaningless, innocuous tackles or reasons. But because it fitted the, the, the description of the black card that had to go, and, uh, even though it was a nothing incident. And you look back at it, when you were being yeah, he, he did do what they said, but that's not what the rule was brought in for, you know, as Joe was alluded to. Just before we finish up, guys, and I appreciate the conversation today, uh, the dubs, uh, they've been amazing. Six All-Irelands in a row in 92, not Donegal, 93, Derry, 94, Dan. You all beat the dubs. You all had their number. Um, will, can, must the Dublin stranglehold be, uh, be, be, be broken, Declan? Listen, anything's possible. It's, uh, they're a serious team. There's no doubt about it. I mean, any team that won six All-Irelands on, on, on the bounce, it could have been eight. Um, the serious, serious outfit, and uh, they've raised the bar to, to a different level. Uh, are they beatable? Yeah, listen, any, any team's beatable. It, it hasn't happened over the last six years, but you've got to, you've got to believe that it's possible. Uh, otherwise, why, why do it? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not easy. Jim Gavin has come in, I think it started with Pat Gilroy, and it's probably started maybe 15, 20 years ago um, when they got the, their, their, their systems in play. But... Uh, they are serious, there's no doubt. They're a really high-performance team. And uh, it's, it's, it is difficult, there's no doubt. And uh, there's work, a lot of work to do for, for, for a lot of counties. But uh, it is doable. That's the bottom line. Otherwise, you know, why, 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 why keep doing this day in, day out? What do you see in terms of the future with this, Joe, with the dubs? I have to say I've been terribly disappointed in Donegal the last two years. I thought that they'd been prepared brilliantly. And I thought, you know, I'd seen them at close quarters in a number of occasions. And I thought these guys, you know, I think from your perspective, and it's the mental side of it, your younger lads are not performing on the big days. 
I particularly remember the day against Mayo in the crucial qualifier game um, where, where Mayo, I know it's a very seasoned Mayo team, but the Donegal boys allowed Mayo to bully them. And again this year, I felt that against Cavan, instead of pushing through and pushing through and pushing through, you know, that's the side of the game that has to be worked on because it seems to me you guys have the athleticism, the talent, the ability, the all-round football all over the field. Very versatile players, a load of pace, a load of skill. As for the Dubs, you know, because they've now built such a solid foundation, you know, they, 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 they've got unrivaled experience now and they've discovered that they thrive when it comes to the crunch. You know, you look at how steadily, you know, their games against Mayo, the win by a point, win by a point, win after a replay. I think five times they've won big All-Ireland semi-finals or finals after a replay, four or five times. They've won games by a point, by a point, by a point, but now they're starting to cruise ahead. And I think that's because they have unrivaled experience in the clutch, in the clutch moments. Because as the two boys will tell you, having been part of winning teams, the crucial thing about winning is to make decisive contributions at the crucial times. And that's where Dublin are now peerless. That's where they're happy. And they understand that's the real joy and satisfaction of the game. And you, you look at the fact that a number of truly outstanding Gaelic footballers and fellows with very strong character have come together at the same time, you know, as you had with the teams that we played on. But you've got you know, boys like James McCarthy, you know, uh, they're, they're defenders who, contrary to what James was saying about most teams, which is correct, that they're always looking for support. Their defenders defend, you know, and they, they do that properly. They, they're quite happy to play you man-to-man. -man. But you add into that now, into this culture, boys coming in like Kieran Kilkenny, and then for me, Conal Callaghan. I mean, you know, I talked about wee teams and, you know, players who are once in an era, you know, wee teams, Clifford, possibly... You know, Clifford's going to have to up his game again. But Con O'Callaghan, for me, at the moment, is the premier Irish sportsman across all the sports. He is unmarkable, extraordinary, totally distinctive skill set. I mean, look at his performance against Mayo when the chips were down. Look at his explosion onto the scene against Mayo a few years ago. And, the, and Tyrone, the goal that destroyed Tyrone's sort of Maginot line in the, in the All-Ireland semi-final. And, uh, you know, these guys, when it comes to it, they have four or five players who will break a stranglehold, will break the gridlock in a game before John. And we see that all the time. And we sort of, we've got to the stage of thinking to ourselves, oh, well, like if that's Dublin, will just do that. But when you actually think about what they're doing, it's that at the most fever pitch in a game, whenever oh, everything's on the line, they have people who will make decisive contributions. That's why Mayo don't win the All-Ireland, because they've got key players who never make decisive contributions. Dublin make them now as a matter of course. And until, until Donegal um, show the sort of metal that Declan Bonnard's team showed, you know, I don't think that I, you know, or Kerry can somehow get themselves together after a tragic, tragic season, when I understand there are all sorts of eruptions in the camp. Then until Kilkenny, Conor Callaghan and these boys uh, reach 30, 31, 32, I see seven, eight, nine All-Irelands there. Yeah, I think what, this year's a formality. What do you see, James? 
Look, it's probably not much to get out there. I was on the Sunday game a number of years ago when I said Dublin was Dublin's to lose for the next 10 years. And I never for once thought that they were going to win 10 in a row, but I'll probably revise that now. Uh, look, I thought they would get caught somewhere along the line. Just to see the, the changeover in the players that they had this year and to bring in the small brothers, to bring in, just the, the way they've integrated new players in, boys that I didn't recognise. They're obviously maybe on the panel last year on the fringe are now starting in the team and it's just a, a smooth change changeover and as Joe says, they're starting to pull away and it's just, look, you're obviously hope, hoping something's going to change. We're all looking on jealously and nobody can begrudge Dublin their success because those players are outstanding and, and, and they deserve it and all the credit but, you know, just you wonder, does it's getting to the stage the way the Kerry team of the 80s like, does, is is uh, one, one All-Ireland in, in the County, County Donegal or down or wherever thrown is that worth is that the same as five in Dublin like, the, the, it's getting the stage like many medicine steam clubs need for God's sake Stephen give us a chance my God would you quit <laughs> and they're not affected by complacency or nerves or anything like that you know you'd think they're coming into games as overwhelming favourites and the real test of a great team is how they handle underdogs I mean you think of Derry against you guys in 94 when we'd absolutely obliterated you the previous year in the marshes I think by maybe 15 points down were nowhere I think you were probably in division two as well you know we were all Ireland champions we had a swagger in our step I mean I remember a few nights before the game Eamon Coleman said in the changing room at Celtic Park and you know Eamon was very funny you know but he shouldn't have said it obviously Eamon says Wait till you hear what them stupid bastards and down has done. He says, apparently, he says, he says, apparently, he says, they've booked, they've booked, they've booked the hotel in Dublin for the All Ireland final. And the, the dressing room exploded. It actually exploded. Everybody laughed. Honestly, I like to remember thinking, Jesus, we shouldn't be laughing. This is not funny. You know, and you come to the morning of the game and you come to the day of the game. And then all of a sudden, you know, Mickey Linton. Start scoring points in the first half. Jeez, you know, you know, first fifteen minutes it looks all dirty. It looks as if it's all going to happen, and then all of a sudden the anxiety is in the air, and Derry don't cope with it. You come through, you score the winning goal at the end. It doesn't happen to Dublin. It, it just it doesn't happen to them. They just close it out, and that's the frightening thing about them. We have the book here, the boys of '93. Joe, Eamon Coleman, and Maria McCourt, forward by yourself a few years ago. That book came out. Um, I think uh, the pandemic will be behind us, Declan, when we have a full uh, crowd uh, at Clonus and a full town and the Diamond and an Ulster final and people back and enjoying themselves and, and being Gales again. Yeah, nothing beats them. Uh, you know, Clonus, we've been fortunate enough to be there as players and managing teams. And um, uh, one of my most forgetful days in, in management would have been back, going back to 98 and uh, Joe getting that last minute goal, which was an, an obvious push, push from Jeffrey, and he laid it off to Joe. And the game. Just the rest, the rest is history. But you can't beat that, that before when you come into the, the diamond there in Clonus on Ulster finally, 30 odd thousand people and uh, um, yeah, the excitement of it all, brilliant, you couldn't, can't beat it. I think looking, at, looking, I don't think it's going to happen uh, this this year, but uh, it's another, going to be another difficult, difficult campaign and suppose we've been living in the last 12 months more or less on, on Zoom calls and meetings and uh, it's just a complete new way of life for everyone. 
and it's about adapting to that there now. We're just waiting for word. The guys are working away on their own, and it's about waiting on word to get back on the pitch to see if what's going to happen. So we don't have that yet. So, yeah, this is, it's not easy. It's been a difficult twelve months, and I know it's been a difficult twelve months for for everyone. And uh, but uh, let's hope there's light at the end of the tunnel with uh, the vaccine coming out now. And uh, you know, let's hope there's a bit of positivity to come. We'll know. We'll know. We'll know. We're we're on the right track, Declan. Whenever we're in packies, myself, yourself, and Tony Boyle having a having. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look for, look forward to that day now. Right. We 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 James up because he never gets anywhere. No, we'll bring we'll bring James definitely. Yeah. No, no doubt. No, I, you wouldn't catch me in any of those hostilities. I, I wouldn't be a pub man at all. Now, no chance. We James is great when he's sober. He talks about how great all his other down teammates were, but whenever he's drunk, all he does is talk about himself. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing about Joe, drunk or sober, he's talking, so we don't know whether he's drinking or not because he never changes. James, are you are you happy enough? You got uh, you got equal time there today. No, but he spent a good bit of it talking about me, so I give him a fool's pardon. <laughs> I don't know what you two were at beforehand, anyway, but I'll tell you what, Joe, it's. Uh, the checks in the post there. <laughs> well, I've said I've said it many times, you know, and, and uh, I remember I, I remember Paddy Heaney, the, the, the journalist Seamus's nephew, going up to do a feature piece up at McCartan's house. I don't know if you remember it, James, but he went up and I think he said there was a tire. Was there a tire in the backyard? And your father came out and he just took a ball and he kicked it through the tire from sort of twenty meters and he said, "That's how you do it, boys." Walked away with the chest out, and of course, James's that, father was James's father was one of the great, the greatest ever footballers, you know, in Ireland, and and like his like his like his great son, totally unmarkable when the mood took him. But uh, no, no, I'm I'm totally serious about what I said about Lee James, you know, and I think that I think Declan would probably agree that it was him as the catalyst for that down team, and then that down team is the catalyst for us that changed everything. And that's what we've been talking about today. Joe Bradley, uh, James McCartan, and Declan Bonner. Down, Derry and Donegal. That success in the 90s and a few thoughts on Gaelic Games nowadays. Mind yourself, guys. Thanks so much for your time and uh, best of luck for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, John. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're back after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 